Welcome to the World War I Centennial News Podcast. It's about then. What was happening a hundred years ago in the aftermath of World War I? And it's about now. How a world transformed by World War I is very present in our lives today. But perhaps equally important, the podcast is about why and how we will never let those events fall back into the mists of obscurity. So welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 106. This week on the show, we're going to start off with a two-week fast run through the headlines of the New York Times to see what was news in the first two weeks of 1919. Then, Dr. Edward Lengel joins us to talk about the 308th Regiment's journey home. Mike Schuster catches us up on Wilson's exploits in Europe, specifically his visit to Rome. We have part two of the story of Sergeant Roy Holtz, the American soldier caught on film riding through occupied Belgium on a Harley. We'll rejoin the conversation between Joe Weishauer, lead designer, and Sabin Howard sculptor for the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. Then we're joined by Bob Shea, Navy veteran and memorial hunter, and much more, all this week on World War I Centennial News, which is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. In a regular segment that we're going to call In the News 100 Years Ago This Week, a takeoff from our headline reporting last year, we're going to explore the newspaper headlines from 100 years ago, providing us great insight into what was on everyone's mind. This week, we're going to span a little wider and start a bit more than a week ago with some history-changing moments. We're going to follow five stories through the daily headlines of the New York Times over two weeks. The five stories are the death of Teddy Roosevelt, the Spartacide revolt in Germany, the strike in New York Harbor, the Versailles Peace Conference starting up, and America's move to prohibition. So let's jump into our centennial time machine and roll back a hundred years ago to January 1919. Dateline, Tuesday, January 7th, 1919. Across the top of the New York Times, it reads, Theodore Roosevelt dies suddenly at Oyster Bay home. Nation shocked, pays tribute to former president. Our flag on all seas and in all lands at half-mast. Blood clot, physicians announce, killed Colonel Roosevelt in his sleep. He worked up to the last. The next day, a proclamation by President Woodrow Wilson. Dateline, Wednesday, January 8, 1919. By Woodrow Wilson, President of the United States, a proclamation. To the people of the United States, it becomes my sad duty to announce officially the death of Theodore Roosevelt, President of the United States, from September 14, 1901 to March 4, 1909, which occurred at his home at Sagamore Hill, Oyster Bay, New York, at 4.15 o'clock in the morning of January 6, 1919. As President of the Police Board of his native city, as member of the legislature and governor of his state, as civil service commissioner, as assistant secretary of the Navy, as vice president and as president of the United States, he displayed administrative powers of a signal order and conducted the affairs of these various offices with a concentration of effort and a watchful care which permitted no divergence from the line of duty he had definitely set for himself. 
in testimony of the respect in which his memory is held by the government and the people of the United States, I do hereby direct that the flags of the United States House and several departmental buildings be displayed at half-staff for a period of thirty days, and that suitable military and naval honors under the orders of the Secretary of War and the Navy be rendered on the day of his funeral. President Woodrow Wilson On the same day Wednesday, also on the front page of the New York Times, Headline, Hundreds Shot Dead in Berlin Streets, Big Guns Used to Check Revolutionists, Dead and Wounded Strewn in the Streets of Chancellery, Attack by Sparticides. The next day. Dateline, Thursday, January 9, 1919. From the headline of the New York Times, Berlin Revolt Held at Bay as Ebert Masses Troops. Flamethrowers ready will be used against the revolutionists if they force crisis at Palace. Allies may allow food imports to end Red Peril. The next day. Dateline, Friday, January 10, 1919. The front page of the New York Times reads, Berlin government reported to have checked revolt. After three days of savage battling in the streets, Heavy fighting in Berlin. Big guns in action as conflict takes place in center of city. Wild disorder in the streets. Sparticides armed from arsenals resist government troop bitterly. On the same day Friday. New York City. Headline. 160,000 go on strike and tie up harbor. 1,000 craft lie idle at piers. Demoralizing water transportation here. Jersey, badly affected. Thousands of commuters discommoded, and Hudson tubes are overtaxed. Navy boats requisitioned. Saturday, January 11, 1919. Federal effort fails to stop harbor tie-up. Lack of tugboats interferes with shipment of army supplies. Call on Wilson to end strike. Secretary of Labor asks President to intervene in harbor tie-up. Washington, ready to act. Dateline, Sunday, January 12, 1919. Headline, Allied Chiefs Meet in Paris Today. Plan full conference on Monday. Rebels beaten back in Berlin battles. Honors for Clemenceau. He will be presiding officer for peace conference. And... End harbor strike on Wilson's plea. Men return today. Unions cheer President's message and vote unanimously to break the tie-up. Dateline, Monday, January 13, 1919. Headline, Versailles, France. Supreme Allied Council meets. Crowd greets notables. Foch, the first to arrive, soon followed by Wilson and British representatives. Dateline, Tuesday, January 14, 1919. War Council amends armistice. Peace talk waits. Japan in the conference. Her representatives sit for the first time in Paris. Berlin revolt now broken. 400 revolutionists captured in failed Eichhorn stronghold. And our news story begins today. Dateline, Tuesday, January 14, 1919. California joins in vote to ratify dry amendment. Legislature records its assent despite adverse popular verdict. 24 states have now acted favorably, leaving only 12 more necessary. Dateline, Wednesday, January 15, 1919. Headline, Paris, France. Seek haste in peace preliminaries. President and Lloyd George confer. War Council resumes work today. Maze of peace proposals. 40 League of Nation plans to be considered. No danger to American ideals seen in any. And on Prohibition, six more states in dry column. Arkansas, Illinois, Indiana, and Kansas among those ratifying amendment. Only six more are needed. Wisconsin, Minnesota, Missouri, and Utah to act soon. And the next day, 
Dateline, Thursday, January 16, 1919. Headline, Paris, France. Adopt secrecy for peace conclave. Americans and British opposing it. New truce terms cause uneasiness. Majority imposes secrecy. French, Italian, and Japanese favor closed door at conclave. British writers protest. Correspondents appeal to Lloyd George while Americans turn to Wilson. Recall publicly promised. And on Prohibition. Dry amendment on eve of victory needs one state. New Hampshire, Iowa, Colorado, Utah, and Oregon make 35 for ratification. Eventual adoption by at least 45 states predicted by prohibition leaders takes effect in a year. And finally, Friday, January 17, 1919. Headline, Paris, France. Conference heeds press protest. Will reopen public case today. League of Nations plan already drafted as covenant by Cecil, Lansing, and House. And on Prohibition. Nation voted dry. 38 states adopt the amendment. Nebraska clinches approval as the 36th state Missouri and Wyoming following. Proclamation next step. Amendment construed as effective one year after Secretary of State so acts. Dry chiefs going into wider fields. Seek to drive liquor from the world and make sure Americans observe the law. And that's the speed at which things moved a hundred years ago in a world transformed by the war that changed the world. Historian and author Dr. Edward Lengel has been a regular contributor to the podcast, giving our listeners great perspective and first-person insight into the experience of the American soldiers as the U.S. recruited, drafted, trained, organized, deployed, and blooded its first large standing army. As we reached the centennial of the armistice, I asked Ed if he'd be willing to continue to tell us the story of the soldiers as the U.S. military transforms into a new post-war army. And he said, yes, hooray. So here's Ed's post this week. After the war, the 308th Regiment's long journey home. American doughboys greeted the armistice of November 11th, 1918 with mixed emotions. Some celebrated wildly. Others mourned slain friends or their own lost innocence. Most went numb at first and then spent days trying to sort out their feelings. Soon, though, the rumors began. Tales spread in many units that the war was going to start again or that the doughboys were being sent to Germany or Russia. The cruelest rumor of all was also the commonest, that the boys would be home by Christmas. That was what the weary doughboys of the 77th Metropolitan Division's 308th Regiment, including the battle-scarred veterans of the Lost Battalion, began hearing and were to keep hearing until Christmas Day came and went and New York City remained far, far away. For a month after the armistice, the weary men of the 308th Regiment were shuffled from one spot to another on the shell-blasted Meuse-Argonne battlefield. On Thanksgiving, finally, the troops were assembled for review by the division commander, General Robert Alexander. Standing in a field of mud under heavy rain, the men learned that they would leave the battlefield, but only for further training around Chaumont. General Alexander, who had driven his men mercilessly in the Argonne Forest, had no intention of stopping now. Filthy and exhausted, with many of the men suffering from fevers, dysentery, and the symptoms of post-traumatic stress, the regiment was driven on a brutal 10-day march until it reached Chaman. At last, officers and men were given food, dry billets, and the opportunity to clean up. Any thoughts of rest, though, were soon discarded. General Alexander wanted his men shipshape. Intense drills and route marches began while veteran field officers were ordered to read staff-produced booklets, such as, I have captured a Bosch machine gun. What shall I do with it? After weeks of thorough training, General Alexander ordered the 308th to perform field exercises to show what it had learned. Machine gun after machine gun was captured with unfailing regularity, recorded the regimental historian. Battlefield communications were emphasized as the troops were taught how to use messenger pigeons without pigeons, semaphore flags, which they had already returned to the depots, wireless equipment, which nobody had ever seen, 
and motorcycles impersonated by, quote, a few shell-shocked beasts from the transport. Headquarters expressed its satisfaction with the remarkable interest displayed by all concerned. Fortunately, General Alexander didn't read some of the wittier field orders issued by his officers during these exercises, such as, hostile band of wild women sighted on horizon to the south, what to do? To which came the immediate reply, capture and hold women, battalion PC will be located there. The days came and went, and the rumors of getting home by Christmas faded. Instead, the officers of the 308th Regiment planned to show their appreciation for their men by staging the biggest holiday celebration in France. Funded by $5,000 sent by the Regimental Association in New York City, and with personal help from the divisional mascot, former President Teddy Roosevelt, officers began formal planning. Then began the plotting of dark schemes, wrote the regimental historian. With secret missions to Paris and the raiding of numerous YMCA, Knights of Columbus, and Red Cross warehouses, as well as the scouring of the surrounding country. It was all worth it. Christmas Day began with religious celebrations, followed by track and field matches, boxing, basketball, potato sack, and three legged races, Charlie Chaplin movies, and dances in town halls. But of course, it was all about the food. Appetizers of chocolates, cigars, cigarettes, cakes, fruit drops, candies, jam, milk, ham, fruit, chewing gum, and milk chocolate were followed by a dinner resulting from all that the limitless ingenuity of 15 unscrupulous mess sergeants could devise. This included punch a la Wilson, followed by cream of celery soup, filet of beef with sautéed potatoes, turkey with dressing and giblet gravy, mashed potatoes, vegetables, French endive salad and Rochefort dressing, allied apple cake, and rice pudding a la Pershing, along with plentiful beer. For a day at least, the men felt a little more human. Memories of the Christmas feast sustained the doughboys through the long months that followed. Routine returned as 1918 turned to 1919 with more drill, hiking, and maneuvers under the broad category of training. In February, the regiment was moved on foot and by train to another encampment in the Loire Valley. There followed weeks of more training and inspections for cooties or lice and to inspect equipment. Just as it had a year earlier at Camp Upton on Long Island, the showbiz-oriented 308th Regiment put on elaborate stage shows, including musicals, comedies, and dramas. By the beginning of April, the men had about reached their limit. The most popular marching song now went, Sick of the smell of billets, sick of the chow, want to leave France and put on long pants, want to go now. Finally, on April 15th, the men were moved to the Port of Brest and prepared for embarkation. But there was one more ceremony of deep personal importance to many doughboys. Originating as it did from greater New York City, the 77th Division was heavily Jewish, perhaps one in four doughboys. Just as these men had celebrated Hanukkah in 1918, but joyfully joined in the Christmas feast, the regiment's doughboys had Passover setters from April 14th to 16th, thanks to general orders granting all Jewish soldiers furloughs during that period. The 77th Division received a special massive shipment of matzos for the occasion. On April 19th, the 308th Regiment left for home. Appropriately, the liner SS America would be taking them back to New York City. Nine days later, the Doughboys lined the rails for a sight that every man cherished, the Statue of Liberty. Dr. Edward Lengel is a noted historian, World War I expert, author, and regular contributor to the World War I Centennial News Podcast. We have links to Ed's posts and his author's website in the podcast notes. Now we're joined by Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Mike, your post this week continues to follow Wilson's tumultuous trip to Europe. This time, we follow his exploits to Italy, where his reception once again runs hot and cold. It's to Wilson's great frustration, isn't it, Mike? Yeah, it certainly seems that way, Teo. The headline reads, Wilson in Rome, Italy in turmoil, golden sand in the streets of the Eternal City, Wilson in a foul mood, and it's special to the Great War Project. On New Year's Day a century ago, in a royal train provided by the Italian government, President Wilson and his wife, headed for Rome, the fourth of the Allies that had fought the Germans to a standstill. 
So writes historian Thomas Fleming, as the train wound through the snow-covered Alps, the monks of St. Bernard's Abbey were forced to slaughter six of their famous rescue dogs because they had run out of food. Oblivious to such details, the president reveled in the adoration of the Italian people. His arrival in the Eternal City, Fleming reports, was a replay of his reception in Paris. Masses of Romans chanted, Viva Wilson, God of Peace. Low-flying planes dropped flowers on his triumphal procession. There were pictures of him in every shop window. The streets were sprinkled with golden sand, a tradition that went back to ancient Rome's days of imperial glory. But as with Wilson's arrival in Paris and London, Prime Minister Vittorio Orlando and his fellow politicians already viewed Wilson with not a little anxiety. Wilson and the Roman leaders do not see eye to eye on the fate of territories taken by the Germans. In this case, it was the Italian claim to the Dalmatian coast and other territories promised them in prior negotiations earlier in the war, including portions of the Turkish Empire in the Middle East. Reports historian Fleming, one of the most outspoken proponents of this view was an editor named Benito Mussolini, whose Milan newspaper proclaimed on January 1, 1919, that imperialism is the eternal, the immutable law of life. In the midst of his Rome sojourn, the Italians surprised Wilson by telling him that famous visitors to Rome normally made a gift of $10,000 to the poor. Wilson did not have the money to pay the gift, writes Fleming. This bit of theater was patently designed to make the president look bad. Wilson takes an unexpected jab at the conservative Italian leaders. In an interview, he creates a sensation when he declares that the Italian people are the most Wilsonian in Europe. Wilson remarks that New York had become the biggest Italian city in the world thanks to recent immigration. Was the Italian prime minister going to claim New York as well? On January 4th, Wilson is preparing his departure from Rome and he plans to give a speech to the Italian people from the balcony where he was staying in Rome. In the planned speech to the Romans, Wilson intends to urge them to abandon the policy of territorial acquisition, supported by their conservative prime minister, Orlando. To Wilson's dismay, reports Fleming, the plaza abutting his residence remained devoid of people. Troops had cordoned it off, leaving Wilson without an audience. The president made some intemperate remarks to the press and left Rome at nine o'clock that evening in an exceedingly foul mood. But outside of Rome and along the route back to Paris, the adoration returned. Before a huge crowd in Milan, in a bluntly radical speech, he proclaimed the superiority of the working class and appealed for the establishment of a League of Nations to solve the world's conflicts and reject the world's system of military alliances that led to such a devastating war. And that's the news at this time 100 years ago from the Great War Project. Mike Schuster is the curator for the Great War Project blog. The link to his post is in the podcast notes. Next, we're going into part two of our multi-part story about Sergeant Roy Hulse of Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. First U.S. soldier on German soil after the armistice of World War I. And he's riding on a Harley Davidson. Our good friend, citizen historian and author Rob Laplander, wrote a researched account of the story. What actually happened, intended for high school students. And Rob gave us permission to read the story to you in serial form. Here is the unabridged, first into Germany, Sergeant Roy Holtz, and he did it on a Harley, by author Robert Laplander. Part two, it's off to war. On February 1st, 1917, Germany announced that she was reversing her decision not to attack ships flying the flags of neutral nations. She announced that she was resuming unrestricted submarine warfare and sinking whatever she felt like. The country grew concerned. America had carried on extensive amounts of trade with the French and the British, selling huge amounts of war materials and food. Now, with free trade threatened, as the Germans attempt to starve the British out of the war by cutting off their supply lines, President Wilson decided to sever ties with the German government on February 3rd, after a German U-boat sank an American grain ship, the Housatonic, while bringing its load to England. And throughout February and March, seven more American ships were sunk. 
But the final straw came when a telegram was uncovered, which had been sent by Alfred Zimmermann of the German Foreign Office in Berlin to the German ambassador to Mexico, proposing an alliance be struck between the Mexican and the German governments against the United States. In this alliance, Germany would provide military support to Mexico, who stood a chance to gain back sections of Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, which had once been part of Mexico. When this Zimmerman telegram was published in the newspaper, across the country, the outcry was really strong, and the message to President Wilson was clear. America had had enough. So, war with Germany it would be, and quickly the nation decided that anything German was bad. Suddenly, some kids stopped playing with the other kids who had German names, and some families in a community were shunned if they spoke German in public. Sauerkraut became liberty cabbage, and street names and even town names that had been German were changed to more American-sounding names. Now, one night, the Holtz household was egged by some misguided individuals just because they were of German heritage. But they were mistaken for thinking that the Holtz boys were anything but all-American boys, no matter where their ancestors had come from, because all three boys signed up with the army almost immediately after war was declared. All three boys would go to Texas for training. Roy and Ezra to the 32nd Division which was made up of boys from the National Guard regiments of Wisconsin and Michigan, as well as volunteers from those states. Ezra was assigned to infantry duty, and Roy was assigned to the 107th Field Signal Battalion as a dispatch rider. Now, this job involved carrying important messages and packages from unit to unit at speed across battlefields, and traditionally had been done on horseback. However, by 1917, the modern era had indeed arrived, and Roy found, much to his delight, that he would carry out his dispatch duties aboard a motorcycle. Motorcycle dispatch riders were something new to war. In August of 1914, the British Army had called for motorcyclists to join the Army and bring their motorcycles with them for duty. And the response had been huge. The London Recruiting Office alone reported that they had 2,000 more volunteers show up than they had spots open. And motorcycle dispatch riders showed up for service in the Belgian, French, German, and Russian armies with similar enthusiasm. Now, motorcycles for the U.S. Army were nothing new. Really. In 1916, the U.S. Army had been charged with a punitive pursuit of the Mexican Revolutionary General Pancho Villa across the U.S.-Mexican border after he'd raided the town of Columbus, New Mexico. The general in charge of that expedition, General John Blackjack Pershing, in fact, knew that the relatively new technology of motorcycles could do really well in the desert conditions that they were operating in, and so he placed an order for 12 machines for his expedition from a small, relatively obscure company that he favored based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That company was called Harley-Davidson. These 12 machines proved to be so dependable and tough during the punitive expeditions that after the U.S. entered the war in Europe in April of 1917, further orders were placed with Harley-Davidson, and by the end of the war, there were 20,000 Harleys in the Army's inventory. Over there, the Harleys were used not only for dispatch riding, but also for the performance of reconnaissance patrols ahead of advancing troops. Many machines were fitted with sidecars and could carry passengers, supplies, or ammunition when needed. And just as they had with the Army in the deserts of Texas and New Mexico in 1916, the nimble motorcycles would again prove themselves to be hardy and reliable machines on the battlefields of France and Belgium in 1917 and 1918. And it was on a Harley-Davidson that Corporal Roy C. Holtz would make history. And that was part two of First into Germany, Sergeant Roy Holtz, and he did it on a Harley, by author Robert Laplander. Rob Laplander is a citizen historian, author of the book 
Finding the Lost Battalion, and importantly, the man behind Doughboy MIA. We have links for you in the podcast notes to this story, Harley, and the Doughboy MIA site. Join us again next week for part three as Roy Holtz ships out with the Red Arrow Division to join the fight over there. Okay, let's fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. As our regular listeners know, this part of the podcast focuses on the present and explores World War I documentation, commemoration, education, and exploration. Here's where we try to show you how the echoes of the war that changed the world are very present in our everyday lives. Let's start with our regular segment, A Century in the Making, an insider's view into the creation of the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. Last week, you met the project's lead designer, Joe Weishar, and sculptor Sabin Howard, as they talked about the evolution of the project and how they got together. Here's part two with Joe and Sabin. One of the things that I wanted to bring to the memorial and, and for it to convey was all of these emotions and that the faces are real. And when you look at it, you will see somebody that you know in one of the faces, be it a parent, a grandparent, somebody currently serving in the military, somebody who has in the past, because this isn't just a memorial for World War I, it is a story of all of us. Yeah, so I did these drawings, and the drawings were the final passing through Centennial Commission. That was our blueprint done over, uh, yeah, 700 hours. And I used that drawing to go into the next phase, which was the creation of the Marquette in New Zealand. And that was squeezed into a six-month period. So this is the use of digital technology to create something with the specifics of the drawing without losing that um, spacing, that structure, that emotional drama that we created. And so we did a bunch of tests. See in the, in the bottom, your left, there's a milling machine. And then if you look over to the bottom one with the gray and the, and the photographs, that is styrofoam painted gray and assembled. So I did in one month, we did five tests to figure out what the depth of the relief should be. So I went over to New Zealand with the thought that this was going to be a relatively flat relief. And I quickly realized that if you made the relief flat, you were not going to impart to the viewer the emotional quality that was necessary to give them a visceral reaction when they visited. And it's, it was too classical. So we moved the figures out more and more in our tests. And in doing that, you got much more of an emotional resonance the depth of the figures gives you more drama in the lights and the darks and the values and more three-dimensionality and you're creating more space because now the figures are in a frame as they move. The frame is, is a containing element and the figures are bursting out of that containing element kinetically. On top parts, this computer system that's called ZBrush, which is something that was very foreign to me. I'm very traditional in my methodology. I'd never done anything but uh, use my hands and my mind and very traditional elements like a pencil and paper and clay and clay tools. So now I'm moving into this modern age. So it was an initiation into a new world for myself as well. Joe's just showing you our process. Once we had gotten the data correct and we passed the first styrofoam printout, we pass that data on to a company that printed it out in plastic, and then the plastic was put into a, a, a box mold, and silicone was poured on top of that. The mold was taken out, and then that mold was used to transfer that plastic into clay. The clay was poured in as a hot liquid, and then um, if you look at the very top figure with the, the, the battle scene, that's the digital image, so that's what I started with. It doesn't have the human fingerprint that's necessary to make this relief look e emotional and, and man-made. You don't want something that's machine-made to describe something that happened 100 years ago. And so that's, you can see the sculpting of it. Um, that's actually my daughter holding the helmet. And then that's the assembly 
of the uh, resin after the clay had passed through another molding process. Right. And if you haven't been up to the first look tent to check out the maquette, it's really something to see. So, uh, and I think we'll be up there afterwards answering probably more questions for an hour or two. So stop by. Yeah, so this, again, this is the drawing um, that, that led us to the, the maquette. So now we have to go to the next stage and that's taken that to times six in scale. So you're not only making it taller, wider, but think volumetrically, each of those figures is going to become six times its scale that it is right now. So it's not really times six, it's six cubed, which is 36 times. So the emotional impact will be 36 times the emotional impact of the maquette. <laughs> uh, yeah. You, you take this. Okay, part. yeah, I'm gonna take this one. Uh, so just like Sabin went through all of his images and iterations of the sculpture, we've done the same thing with the design of the park. And every stage, we are reevaluating all of the decisions that we've made in the design, trying to make it better and better and better. And the wonderful thing about sort of our collaboration is when we look at how will visitors approach the sculpture, what will they see, that sort of falls more into my territory of what will they experience as they walk towards the sculpture and how do they get there? Um, and so what we've developed over all these iterations um, is a really wonderful connection through this park. As visitors come in, we have to be able to capture their imaginations. And so if you come in from the west side at all, uh, you'll be greeted with a 56-foot-long cascade of water that will have really a thunderous appearance audiologically in the park. And if you come in from either of the other two sides, the immediate connection that you'll make will hopefully be between the Pershing Memorial and this new sculpture that Saban's created. And what we want to do there is really create a balance. We didn't want really to just leave the park as it was, a, a tribute to the great man, to the general, because without his troops, more than half the story is missing. So by placing Saving Sculpture on this end of the park, we can sort of, we can balance things out. And so now the general, if you go and look at the statue, he is facing this direction and he's got his field glasses. And so he will be looking at his troops reunited with them at last. Then the way we've set up circulation throughout the park, you'll be able to walk from the Pershing Memorial directly down those steps and right out to the sculpture across the fountain. It's interesting, um, you can see how the flat, you see how the flat quality is linear. And so as you move the sculptures out, you get a lot more of a, a dark shadows and the contrast of, of light to dark really increases. Um, and the, it's the kinetic feel changes. So, you know, it's, everything's moving at a different rate of speed towards the future, um, which is that last scene of the father handing the daughter, the next generation, the helmet. Right. And this is, yeah, this is really the image that I've, I've used time and time again as a litmus test of, of where we are in the process of testing Sabin's work against how it fits into the park, just to make sure that it all, it will read with all the gravitas and things that he has imparted into this amazing sculpture. And so this is an aerial view showing sort of what the visitor experience will be. Uh, down in the bottom right, you can see the Pershing Memorial. Uh, and then the upper left, the new sculpture and the walkway connecting them. Yeah, the, the sculpture will replace the Zamboni shed and the fountain. Right behind us. Uh, and then, Sorry. Yeah. And then in between, there's an interpretive area that right where the plastic uh, kiosk is out there that we're calling the Overlook or Belvedere. And that is really the heart and soul of the park. It has all the interpretive information and it allows you to stand in one spot and look at both the Pershing Memorial and at the new sculpture and really see and understand more fully that connection. Uh, and then if you were to come in either of the west entrances, uh, this is that large cascade wall. Oh, and that, that's the end. And we've, that's it? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, sure. Joe Weishauer, the lead designer, and Saban Howard, the sculptor.
the winners of the commission's international design competition talking about the evolution of the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. Learn more about the project at www.cc.org forward slash memorial or by following the link in the podcast notes. In Commission News, we're very excited to welcome our new Director of Development who just joined us in 2019. His name is Phil Mazzara. Actually, Phil's an old friend of the Commission. Back in the spring of 2014, he helped us as an advisor for our initial strategies for setting up the foundation, our advisory boards, and so forth. Phil spent four decades working on capital and fundraising campaigns for organizations like hospitals, medical centers, colleges, universities, and NGOs. One of these was the Carter Center in Atlanta, Georgia. As Phil noted in a recent discussion, quote, This gave me an opportunity to work with President and Mrs. Carter on planning and implementing a $150 million endowment campaign. Now, not many fundraising professionals get the opportunity to work with a living former president and first lady. It was an amazing experience, Phil said. Phil's father served as a Navy officer in the Pacific during World War II, and his son also went Navy, graduating from the U.S. Naval Academy in the class of 2000. His stepdaughter is a colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps, currently stationed in Okinawa. At the commission, Phil's duties will focus on ensuring that the funds necessary to build the memorial are in hand or pledged in a timely manner, and developing new fundraising strategies to raise funds after the memorial's completed for ongoing upkeep and maintenance and education. We'll have Phil on the show in the coming months, but in discussion with him, he made an interesting observation, noting that normally college or hospital fundraising, there's a constituency, such as alumni or patients. But our fundraising campaign for the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. has no natural constituency. We lost our last U.S. World War I veteran, a guy named Frank Buckles, in March of 2011. Phil notes, quote, Our biggest challenge is developing a cohort of donors who have some connection with or interest in the Great War. To which I reply, hey, they're listening to the podcast right now. Phil, welcome to the centennial of World War I. And thank you for all the work that you're putting in, in helping America get the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. built. For our Remembering Veterans segment, this week we're talking about memorial hunting. Nearly a hundred years ago, after World War I, thousands of memorials were erected to honor those who serve and those who give their lives in this epic global struggle. Although we never built one of the nation's capital until now, local World War I memorials were put up by towns, cities, veterans, organizations, schools, churches, civic organizations, and clubs. One thing we discovered as we were setting up our 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Matching Grant Challenge was that today, There is no national register of these important and many times forgotten American cultural and historical treasures. So that's when we launched the Memorial Hunters Club. The idea is that we're asking the public to look for World War I memorials in their communities. And when they find one, to look it up on our map and see if it's not there. And if it's not, register it. We even offered to let the intrepid memorial hunters include a selfie with the memorial that they bagged, which then goes into the permanent National Register record. One of our memorial hunters, Lamar Veach, former state librarian in Georgia, began to search his state, riding his beloved motorcycle from county to county and finding hundreds of them, all registered World War I memorials, taking pictures and getting them into the national map. Another remarkable memorial hunter is our next guest. Robert Bob Shea, a Navy veteran and commander of the Jewish War Veterans Pacific Northwest Post 686, chaplain of the Veterans of Foreign Wars Lake Washington Post 2995, and more. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tail. So, Bob, let me start by simply saying thank you for having taken the time on this passion. Where did you first learn about the Memorial Hunters Initiative? Well, I was already involved in restoring our World War I memorial here in Bellevue, Washington. When I was directed to contact a professor at Eastern United States University who was involved in a project of cataloging these monuments. So I contacted him and he told me, let me know when you get it done and I'll put you on our site. And after a while, 
he contacted me and asked me to get in contact with you at the Centennial Commission. Oh, I didn't know that story. Okay. How many memorials have you registered? I have registered so far 177 memorials and monuments in 19 states and counties. I have 90 more of them on my computer yet to upload, plus I've got more trips planned before the commission ends its mission. Oh, that's wonderful. So you've woven this activity into you and your family's love for traveling around the country, right? Could you tell us about how you go about finding the memorials? Yeah, let's start out with the places in the towns to look, which are city parks, old schools, churches, county courthouses, and the like. The other way is many of our trips coincide with a family or a Navy reunion event around the country. So first we have the event planned, then we decide a driving route and itinerary. After that, I look up each county and county seat and small town that we'll pass through on the roads that we're on. And we drive on state highways, for the most part, very few freeways. A computer search for veterans, soldiers, and war memorials or monuments is the next thing I do. And I write these all up in a spiral binder that my wife, who is navigator, she keeps that. Then I fly by my gut, my gut feeling. Once I reach a town, I try to look around and see if there's anything that would tell me there's a monument here. For instance, we're traveling from Zambroda, Minnesota to St. Louis, Missouri, and we pass through the small town of Leroy, Minnesota. And at 25 miles an hour, you can see a lot of the town. And I noticed a very well-kept American Legion post, so I thought, there must be a memorial here. And when I saw the city park directional sign, I made the turn, and my wife's side had another memorial stop. And sure enough, there was a memorial in the town park. Okay, Bob, what's your wife's name? Marilyn. So is Marilyn just really patient or also interested? <laughs> In her words, a little of both. So when you arrive at these towns and you find one of these memorials, do people often know what it is or have they forgotten what that thing out there is supposed to be about? <laughs> oh my gosh, there are just hundreds of stories. In some cases, I'll go into the town and I'll stop and ask a police officer. And the police officer said, well, I'm really not from this town, so I don't know. And then there's the town I stop in and I stop a county sheriff and a local police officer and both of them look and they point down the road and they said, two blocks down on the right. <laughs> so it just depends. And then there's a fantastic story of stopping in the local VFW. Uh, the story of that VFW is a story in itself. But I went into the bar and asked the bartender, and she was very helpful and directed me to the local memorial. I went there and photographed it, and while I was standing in front of it, photographing it and taking notes, I turned around and I saw another one in front of the post office. And I went over and photographed that. And I went back to the VFW and I thanked the bartender and told her while I was there, I turned around and saw the one at the post office, and I did that one also. And she said, I didn't know there was one at the post office. She says, I go to the post office every day, and I never noticed it. You know, Bob, I hear that story all the time, that these are literally hiding in plain sight, and it really is the case. If somebody's interested in this kind of activity and wants to take it up, what are some of the things that you would recommend to them? Well, I could see this as a family event. Now, this basically started in 1996, as part of our family's Memorial Day celebration. We went out to a local cemetery and we placed 58 flags on the veterans' graves. That's with my two daughters and my son and my wife. We had a picnic lunch in the little park that's at the cemetery and the kids enjoyed putting out the flags. So that 58 flags has now grown into a project of 950 flags in six cemeteries around the city of Seattle and Bellevue. And I have three school groups that help me. So that's where I came into it. And it was a family event. Now it's a family project with my wife and I traveling the country doing this. And it all grows out of what we as veteran service organizations, whether it's the Jewish War Veterans, the VFW, the American Legion, it's in our constitutions and in our directives and our bylaws. And that is to remember all veterans who have gone before us. And as a World War II veteran told me when I came back, 
from overseas in 1968. It's the job of those of us who return to remember those who didn't. And so that is why my wife understands why I do this. Bob Shea, veteran, patriot, traveler, and intrepid memorial hunter. Learn more about the memorial hunters at www.cc.org hunter. And a great big thank you to Bob Shea and his patient wife, Marilyn, for their great contribution in getting these cultural treasures registered. And that wraps up episode number 106 of the award-winning World War I Centennial News Podcast. Thank you for listening. We want to thank the following. Dr. Edward Lengel, military historian and author. Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog. Rob Laplander for graciously allowing us to serialize his short story about Roy Holtz. Joe Weishauer and Sabin Howard, the lead designer and sculptor for the new World War I memorial in our nation's capital. Bob Shea, commander and chaplain, now acting as memorial hunter for the commission. Special thanks to Mac Nelson and Tim Crow, our interview editing team. Katz Laszlo, the line producer for the show. J.L. Michaud and Dave Kramer for research and writing. And I'm Theo Mayer, your producer and host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I, including this podcast. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators, their classrooms, and the public. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And, of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and also the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.cc.org. You'll find World War I Centennial News in all the places you get your podcast, and even using your smart speaker by saying, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The podcast Twitter handle is at the WW1 Podcast. The commission Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Thank you for joining us, and don't forget, keep the story alive for America by helping us build the memorial. Just text the letters WWI or WW1 to the phone number 91999. No more beer, my heart will cheer. Goodbye, whiskey. You used to make me frisky. So long, highball. So long, gin. Oh, tell me when you're coming back again. Blue, I've got the blue. They amputated my food. Lordy, lordy, boys. Well, you know. I don't have to tell. Oh, I've got the alcoholic blues. Some blues. Thank you for listening. So long.